All right, so last week we began in Samuel just really sitting in this, uh, the where does Samuel fit in the overall context of the word of God? And as we get into Psalms 1 and 2 this morning, this, here's the connection. As we sit in Samuel, the Septuagint, in, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, a couple of hundred years before Christ, Samuel wasn't called First and Second Samuel. It was called Kingdoms, and it was all one book. Because the idea is just sitting in the kingdoms of Israel. There's a major transition going on in Samuel away from Judges, the demand of the people for a king like the other nations. It's a rejection of God. And again, just all the nuances that, are, that we're going to sit in as we travel through this narrative in kingdoms. But as we sit in the Psalms in connection with Samuel, David, King David is the author of half of the Psalms. He's known as the great psalmist. His son, David's influence on Solomon. Solomon Solomon was the author of over a thousand songs, we are told, in the Word of God. So some of the Psalms are, there's only a couple from Solomon. There's some from Moses. Most of them are from David. David's influence on the next generation, the sons of Korah, Asaph. You see those as authors of, of the Psalms that we have is a lot feeding from David's influence. So when we sit in the Psalms, we're going to sit in this idea that these are kingdom melodies. And our prayer this morning, and our prayer as we sit in this poetry, is that God would continue to enable our souls to sing. I don't sing very well vocally. I can't carry a tune very well. So I go, I go in the back and I sing my heart out against the wall and up to the Lord so nobody else has to hear me and be a distraction of those kinds of things. I love to sing, but I can't do it publicly because my voice doesn't let me. But the word, you're looking at your table of contents in the Bible, the first five books are known as the books of Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is known as the Torah in Hebrew. It's known as the Pentateuch, again, coming from that, that Greek word for out of the Septuagint translation, these five books. This is what's known as the law. And I want to make sure that we free ourselves from when you hear the word law, especially in the New Testament context, where you are not saved by the law. You are not saved by your self-righteousness. You are not saved by your obedience. You are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, right? So when we contrast grace and law, usually law gets to be a dirty word. It's something that's kind of like patooey. But when you sit in what the meaning of this word means, it's teaching, it's instruction, it's statutes, it's God's will, his heart, his rules, that we're not to obey because we have to and God's mean and this is, you know, and all this agitation on the inside. There's this, the, the grandeur of it, the wonder of it, the, the delight and the desire for obedience to God's law, his teaching and instruction is this recognition that he's given to us that it's right. His law is perfect. It's true. It's good. My soul bashes against it and kicks against it in different ways. I find myself doing those things that God says don't do and not doing the things that God says to do. And again, this is Paul in Romans 7, a wretched man that I am who's going to deliver me from this body of death. 
Jesus Christ. I thank God for Jesus Christ. As we sit in Psalm 1 this morning, there is a, you can read through it in this very self-righteous, if I only do, if I do what God tells me to do, then I'm going to have a good and blessed and prosperous life. Excuse me, that is not what the psalm is communicating. Again, when you sit in the entire context of God's word, it's we have this dependence upon him and this trust in him. This is why I delight in his word. This is why I avoid certain things and I pursue other things. And it's Jesus Christ who lived his life perfectly for us. He gives to us his righteousness. He justifies us. We are, we are, we are told that we now, through faith in Christ, that we hold his perfect image. We hold his perfect righteousness. Now, I know as we go through daily life, as we look in the mirror, this isn't our reality in behavior and thoughts, and we're going to sit in these ideas. But when you sit in this overarching theme of just looking at the first five books of Moses, this is the foundation that God has revealed himself, what is true, what his rules are, what his plans and purposes are. And then when you sit in the rest of the narrative of the Old Testament and the New Testament, all of it's always looking back to these first five books. This is why it becomes important this morning. So Psalms is divided into five books. So if you look at your title page for the book of Psalms, it's going to say underneath Psalms, it's going to say book one. And book one is the first 41 Psalms. So this is one of these ideas that we have to press into. These psalms were written over generations by different people. So there was a subsequent generation that put all of these songs together. And this is seen after the Babylonian captivity, after the Jews come back into the land of Israel. This is when all these different texts are put together into a singular book that we know as psalms. But they're intentionally put into an order and a structure to mirror the Torah, the first five books of, of the word of God that we have, the books of Moses. And this is what we're going to sit in. When you sit in Psalm 1, when you sit in Psalms 1 and 2, they're seen as an introduction to the entire content of the book of Psalms. So when we look at Psalm 1, it is very clear that we are given an introduction to the overall purpose of the Psalms. And when we sit in Psalm 2, it's very clear that we are sitting in the message, the overarching message of the Psalms, which we began in Psalm 99 last week. And its first verse is, the Lord reigns. Yahweh kings. His activity is kingship in his sovereignty. The message of all of the Psalms is picked up out of Psalm 2, and it is the almighty God. He reigns, and he is sovereign. Now, before we get into just looking at Psalms this morning, verse by verse for these first couple, I want to give you a resource. So my hope today is that the Holy Spirit gives you a, a, an ongoing hunger and thirst for his word, to study it, to know God through it, to have an intimate relationship with him. And this is, a, this is a commentary. This guy's name is Mark Futato, F-U-T-A-T-O. And there are a couple of books that he is the author of. One of them, it's uh, Tyndale is the publisher. 
Cornerstone is the name of the commentary series, and it's a commentary in the book of Psalms, and there's a different author, but it's also the book of Proverbs. So on the book of Psalms, uh, this guy is the author of this commentary, and this is why I want to offer this to you as a resource and why I'm bringing him up. So this guy, his, his testimony is that he had an instructor tell him that reading the Psalms in English is like kissing your bride through a veil. There's, there's a lack there, right? There's a lack of intimacy. There's a lack of connection. Now, the Psalms that we have in English in the translation, they're awesome. They are wonderful and they are beautiful. But there are so many things in Hebrew poetry that we will never see in English that is very clear and very easily recognizable in Hebrew. I don't speak Hebrew. Many of the things that I'm going to teach this morning, I would not know outside of other people who understand the language to pin these things down and to point these things out for me. For instance, as we begin in Psalm 1 today, it talks about meditation, that, we, that the one who is blessed meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. This word for meditation has a specific meaning that we'll get to in a minute. Psalm 2 uses, it talks about the empty plotting of the, the nations and the rulers. The word for plot, it's the exact same thing as meditation. If I didn't have somebody who knows and understands Hebrew, I wouldn't be able to pick these things up in the English because English translators use different words which is good because they're conveying different ideas. The same word has to be translated in context and that kind of information. In Psalm 1, Psalm 1 begins with this word blessed, blessed. It's ashray in the Hebrew. Begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Ashray, Asher, your name means happy one, fortunate one, blessed. This is why we named our son. It's the same consonants in this word for what it means to be blessed. Psalm 1 ends with this word tovid in the Hebrew. It's, it means perishing. It means, you know, destroyed, nothingness, the end. And, and the, in the Hebrew, it's the beginning. The first word of this, this poetic song begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The last letter of this psalm begins with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and in that poetry and in the imagery that we're being provided is the great distance between a blessed life of life and a perishing life of death. So as we sit in Psalm 1 and the instruction that it's providing and the instruction that it's giving us for everything that Psalms is communicating, it's giving us this contrast between life and death. If any of you have ever heard of the Didache, it is D-I-D-A-C-H-E. The Didache is known as the teaching of the 12 apostles. It's the earliest Christian writing that we have outside of the word of God. And its communication, again, is presenting here's the way of life in Jesus, and here's the way of death outside of Jesus. Communicating that same imagery and that same information that Psalm 1 is communicating. I mention it all the time. I say the same thing every week. It doesn't matter if I'm in Genesis or any other book, all the way to the end of Revelation. It is the same consistent message. God is. God is king. He made you. He loves you. This is how you respond to him. So, Psalm 1. Hopefully this is 
review for most of you. Let's read through, um, let us, let's read through both Psalms 1 and 2. And they, again, will point out, and even just before we even begin, um, how they, the idea and, and their connectiveness. Again, Psalm 1 begins with blessed. Psalm 2 ends with blessed. Again, it, it provides this bookend of thought in the poetry that's going on. So here we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law, the Torah of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the seats in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, literally against his Messiah, the Christ, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And when his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. All right, back to Psalm 1, just looking at this as a poetic introduction to the entire book of Psalms, that its purpose is to give us instruction in the way of life and the way of death. And as we sit in the language of poetry, one, just one thing to point out, most of your translations should have uh, a lot of indentation going on as you go verse by verse through the Psalms. Um, that's, that's there for a reason, to help you understand the flow of thought. Uh, there's, there's these colons, which are these like these major ideas within a psalm and within Hebrew poetry that form a line, that form these overall paragraphs. As we sit in Hebrew poetry, there is a lot of this idea of parallelism. 
So one, you read something in one line, and then the next line says the exact same thing in a different way, uh, giving you a fuller flavor. You sit in a lot of contrast where we're presented right now with the way of a blessed man and the way of a perishing man. There's a contrast that we are being taught. As we sit in Hebrew poetry, and again, the recommendation for the commentary is that it will help point out these, this, the structure within the Psalms, that some of it is, uh, you only see the structure that's being given in the poetry by the grammar that's being used. Uh, some of these words rhyme, so in English, uh, our songs and our poetry will use rhyme to help memorize and to help bring about different ideas and, and emphasis. So Hebrew poetry does the exact same thing. But here is what it's communicating. Blessed is the man, and immediately the poetry sets up this, this tension because he doesn't give the positive, the psalmist gives the negative. Blesses the man who doesn't do these things. And it says uh, that you don't, you don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, here's the thing. Did anybody wake up today and say, you know what? The bad advice that comes my direction, that's the advice I'm going to take today. You know, the actions, my, my behavior today, you know what? I'm going I'm to choose to do the wrong thing and the bad thing. You know what? I'm just feeling a little bit off today. I'm just going to have a bad attitude. Anybody wake up that way today? So none of, none of us wake up in our daily life, in our daily pursuit, seeking these things. To have the counsel of the ungodly, that's listening to wrong and bad advice. To sit or to stand in the path of sinners, again, this is to take the wrong course of action. To sit in the seat of the scornful, Scornfuls, they're mockers, they have a bad attitude, bad words in their mouth. This is not what we seek after. We're seeking after the exact opposite, whether you have a relationship with Jesus or not. Nobody wakes up and says that this is the behavior that I want to have today. Yet, do you receive counsel that is bad that seems like it's good in the moment? Do you take actions in your life that right now, in this moment, in my decision-making process, this feels like the right course of action? Or your attitude in a given person, in a given circumstance, you know, we feel justified, we feel right in these things that we sit in. The issue is, is that our heart is wicked, it's deceitful. God's given to us emotions, and if we only respond to life by the emotions that he's given to us, often they're going to lead us away from the Lord. So where does the blessed man find good counsel, the right action, and the right attitude? Where's the delight? Where's the desire, the thirst, the hunger? It's found in the law of the Lord, his instructions. His will, what he says is right, what he says is wrong, even when we're the toddlers going, why? Why? Why can't I do this? I want to do that, right? We ask these questions all the time. Our hearts want to do certain things. And if we're looking for our reasoning to give us the reason why we can or can't do something, or we're looking for somebody else to uh, find their opinion to justify what I want to do, that way is perishing. That way is not life. 
Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman whose delight your desire is in the law, the instructions of Yahweh. In his instructions, you meditate day and night. And here's the idea of meditation. It's mumbling. It's, it's talking to yourself. When you get up in the morning, when you're going throughout the day, when you put your head on your pillow at night, you're sitting there murmuring and mumbling and meditating and thinking about what the word of God has to say in light of your daily context. I'm th- I'm, I'm, I keep telling people I'm kind of thin right now. I'm worn out. I have a lot of pressures at work. I can't get all of my work done, so it's causing me to feel a certain way. I have to submit that feeling to God every single day because my feeling makes me want to be short. It makes me want to be curt. It makes me want to be a little aggressive in my flesh. So as I'm sitting there, I have to murmur to myself, what does the word of God say? Yeah, there's, a, there's context where Jesus is a warrior. But there's so many other contexts where Jesus is gentle. And I'm, I'm trying to find that balance, Lord. When, where I need to be a warrior in my personality, show me. Where I need to be gentle and kind and loving, Lord, show me. You struggle with this? I struggle with this. This is why we meditate. What does the word of God have to communicate to me right now? What's going on in my life right now? What does your word have to, have to say about it? What am I planning for the future? Lord, I want, I want your plans in my mind and heart. And here I am. I'm open-handed. I want my life to bring you glory. I want to be the man of God that you've created to be. Lord, speak. He speaks to us through his word day in and day out. Meditate on it. Murmur it. Say it to yourself. Have this ongoing conversation is what this meditation is. And then in the poetry, again, it's here's the definition of a happy, of a life that is, it's, it's good, it's holy, it's in the Lord. Begins with this negative contrast to build the tension, provides the singular source. Pursue God through the truth of his word every single day. And here's, here's a metaphor. Here's an image of what the blessed man and the blessed woman's life looks like. And he gives this image of a tree. Now, we live in the midst of a forest, so it's really easy to see how much water drops out of the sky and how that nourishes all of the, all of the plants that we see in abundance here. I'm from the Mountain West. In Utah, if you don't plant it, you don't water it, it doesn't grow. And you can really easy see in a desert environment exactly where the water is because there are trees along the banks of every single stream and every single water source in that kind of environment. So the metaphor, the imagery that he gives to you, a blessed life, a happy life, a life in the Lord, it's like a tree that has been intentionally sown and planted next to a source that it needs for the nutrients that you need in life, the provision that you need. Your leaf, it's not like we watch in the fall and the leaves, they die and they fall to the ground and we watch this repetitious cycle. The imagery for this tree, what's the most famous tree that we have in the word of God? It's the image of the tree of life in the garden. The tree that Adam and Eve ought to have eaten from that they didn't 
that in their sin and disobedience, when they were sent out of the garden, why did God send them out of the garden? To protect that, them from having access to this tree of life. And again, in the end of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, we see this tree planted on both sides of the river that is proceeding from the throne of God. This is all imagery conveying this relationship that we have with God. Your leaf, you will not wither in any circumstance in life if you are planted in the Lord, in his word, through the Holy Spirit, through faith in Jesus Christ. You feel all of this. Your fruit, whatever God desires to produce in your life, it will be produced in its season. Believe it. You don't watch a tree, you know, striving and straining to produce its fruit. Every plant produces the fruit that it was designed to, pr to produce in its season. Your life will produce what God wants it to produce in its season. What are you to do? Just walk with him. Murmur. Have the question. Have the prayer. Here's a metaphor of what the blessed man's life looks like. Whatever you do shall prosper. Now, does that hold true? If you... Always meditate on the word of God. Your life will always be prosperous. Yes or no? You got to, this is where you got to sit in the bigger picture. In the bigger picture of Psalms, the Psalms wrestle with I, this idea. If you want to read a, a great book, go and read the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk is asking this question. Why do the wicked prosper? Asking this question of God. I'm, I'm going to stand back and I'm going to wait for the Lord to answer me. And you sit with Habakkuk in the question and God's response. And we see this in life. So, in so many ways, wickedness, bad advice, bad behavior, bad attitudes give rewards in culture and in life on the surface, right? And we all, we all can see wicked men and wicked women um, that have the appearance of their life being blessed. And this is where this now starts to translate also into having a long-term end-time end perspective in verse 4. Gives the ungodly are not like the, this metaphor in regards to the blessed, but they're like chaff. Chaff is nothing. So chaff is that external husk of, of grain where when you roll out uh, grain to separate the wheat from the chaff, it's thrown up into the air so that the heavy seed falls to the ground and the chaff blows away. It, chaff is good for nothing. You don't save it, you don't blend it, you don't weave it into some kind of fabric or use it for anything else. Chaff, it's, it's worthless, it's good for nothing. The blessed man, there's, there's a prosperity that God has promised in his life in a relationship with him. The ungodly are not so. Even if you see prosperity in their life, their end, it's nothing. It's worthless. It's good for nothing is the imagery that we are given. Verse 5, therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Again, that end time in the, when, when God is going to divide the good from the evil, those who have faith in Christ versus those who don't. Again, this very end perspective, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And think about what that says about the righteous. You will stand 
in Christ in the judgment, declared righteous. You will stand in the congregation of the righteous for all eternity. This promise, the Lord knows your way. He has, he has an intimate acquaintance with who you are. He has an intimate acquaintance with his plans and his purposes for your life. He knows everything that you're struggling. Nothing captures God by surprise. We're gonna sit in the next Psalm in this idea that the word of God uses a lot of human emotion language to help us understand thoughts and ideas that are coming from God. But when the Bible talks about God being angry at sin, it's not like he's just all happy in one moment and you mess up and it's, wait a minute, what'd you do? That's, that's not the response. He, ha he has a godly anger towards anything that is in rebellion and opposition to him but he knows the beginning from the end. Nothing captures him by surprise. So he uses this very human language to help us understand the contrasting ideas. The Lord is very intimately acquainted with the way that he is leading you, the way of the righteous. And again, beginning with happy, this psalm ends with the way of the ungodly shall perish, giving a poetic bookends of the very extreme contrasts from beginning to end of a blessed life versus a perishing life. Now again, in Psalm 2, it's shifting into this question. And again, you can place the ungodly, the sinners, the scornful. Why are these nations raging? Why do the ungodly, why do the sinners, why do the, scorn, the, uh, the scornful, why are they raging and the people meditating, again, that same word for meditating, they're murmuring, they're plotting, they're planning. How do I get out of him? How do I get to do me and my thing and my ideas is this whole, these first few verses are painting this picture. They're raging, they're plotting what is ultimately empty things, kings, rulers of the earth. They're, stand, they're putting themselves in a position and conspiring together. And again, it's against Yahweh and against his anointed. As we sit in this whole idea of anointed and the Messiah, the Christ, all of this imagery is pointing to David. So we're going to sit in this narrative as we go through the story of uh, the nation of Israel rejecting God as king, demanding a king, God providing Saul and that whole thing that goes on, and then God replacing Saul with David, a, a man who is defined as after God's heart, in pursuit of God, meditating in his word, even in the midst of some of his issues. David is given to us as this foundational definition of God's king of his kingdom. And again, as we sit in the New Testament, looking uh, at Jesus as the Messiah, as the anointed one, there's God's king. There's God's son. And as we go through the rest of the psalm, these ideas are pointing back to uh, the promise of God to David in 2 Samuel 7. And they're also pointing forward to God sending his only begotten son. So let's go through this. Their hearts here in verse three, 
the kicking against his anointed, the conspiracy against. And again, you can sit in our very individual hearts. We can sit in cultures and kingdoms. But there's this feeling that God has put me in a prison. God is restrictive. God is pulling the cords of my life. And the imagery that's given into this is the human being in relationship with God, they just feel like an ox. They feel like there is a yoke upon them and all they are doing is being driven in this life to do something that they don't want to do. That's, that's the heart of the imagery that's being portrayed. And again, this is, this is an idea that we can each sit in. In your relationship with God, you feel like he's restricting you. Think, uh, sit with Paul uh, before, well, on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus comes to Paul, manifests himself, and he tells Paul, it's hard to kick against the goads, Paul. Paul felt like an ox, and he was being driven in a direction in his life, and God was revealing the truth to Paul, and what was Paul doing against it? Kicking. That's the same imagery. An ox kicking against where it's being driven, kicking against the Lord's will, kicking against the Lord's rules. You ever been there? All the time. Meditating on Lord, correct me, change me, transform me. So this psalm paints a picture in the first few verses of humanity that is in rebellion against Yahweh and Yahweh's anointed. Verse 4 begins and the, the poetry shifts to God's perspective. He who sits in the heavens, literally, depending on your translation, it should say enthroned because when, when a king sits, I'm just, I'm just the guy sitting on a stool, right? If a king's sitting on the stool, what does the stool become? A throne. Wherever God sits, that's where he is enthroned is the idea. He is the sovereign king. He sits enthroned in the heavens. He shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. That word for derision ties back to the idea of those who are mocking and those who are scornful. God shall hold them in derision. Verse 5, again, there's a progression here. He shall speak to them. He shall rebuke them in his wrath. And again, this isn't a momentary thing of God. This is God's constant state against anything that is in rebellion to him. He shall speak to them in his wrath. And again, the result of that rebuke of the Lord is for them to be distressed, for them to be horrified in his deep displeasure, his deep fury. And then there's this great contrast coming out of God's mouth, coming out of his heart, revealed to this psalmist in verse 6, but or yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And again, look at this as God proclaiming his provision, proclaiming his place and all that Zion represents in Jerusalem as the place for God to, uh, where his name would dwell, his king, his place. And in verse seven, it's his son. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. 
This is pointing back again to the promise that God gives to Samuel in 2 Samuel, that I am going to give to you a son, and on the throne of Israel, your son, your descendants will always remain upon it. That's not fulfilled in Solomon. And, we can, and we're going to sit in that long arc narrative. This is pointing to Jesus as the son. So at Jesus' baptism, when God the Father speaks his voice to heaven, what does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, as Jesus goes up onto this mount and takes with him uh, Peter and James and John, and they see Jesus transfigured and Moses and Elijah there along with Jesus, the voice that comes out of heaven, the Father's voice, once again says what? This is my beloved son. You listen to him. You hear him. Again, the, the, the revelation in regards to the father's testimony about who Jesus is as his beloved son is pointing back to the promise that he gave to David about his son, his descendant, seated, seated on his throne for all eternity. And much of the New Testament narrative points back to that. In the Old Testament, when we talk about David as king and the role of king and the authority of king, it is pointing to this future anointed one, Christ who is coming. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In Acts chapter 13, when Peter quotes that as he is proclaiming the gospel, he uses this as a reference to the resurrection. So on the day of Jesus's resurrection, that is the declaration that he is the son. And here is the day where you know, how is it that the eternal Jesus was begotten? Again, it's giving this imagery of what the son is, and it's giving the imagery of what it means for him to be the firstborn, the only begotten. It is a title, it is a position, all in reference back to this. Again, the message of the Psalms, the message of the word of God is God is king. To his son, the father says, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. When we were studying through Revelation, brings up this idea multiple times. We came back and studied this idea as we were there in Revelation. Because again, when Jesus comes back to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years, here is the promise, all the nations shall be his. He shall rule them. Those in rebellion, it will be a rod of iron, a forced peace. The world will obey his law. What's the conclusion of the matter? Again, this is a psalm that is flowing from, here is a rebellious heart. Here is God's perspective in that rebellious heart. Here is God's perspective on rulership and his king. What are we to do with all this information? Therefore, be wise, O kings. Kings, rulers, judges, you can put this on national levels and you can put it in an individual level. There is a command to be wise, to understand. There is a command to be instructed, to let the word of God instruct us and to correct us. You judges of the earth. And again, the, the exhortation, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
when you sit in when you sit in God's word, it's kind of why do why do I need to come to my God who loves me in fear? And this is the idea. I don't want if we choose an American political figure, we'll just get divisive because some people would want to throw stones at him and other people will tremble before him. But everybody likes the Queen of England, right? Queen Elizabeth, pretty all right. The queen walks into this room right now and all of her pomp and pageantry and who she represents in our world, would you be a little bit nervous? Maybe the Queen of England's a bad example, but put into your mind the, the celebrity, the, the man, the woman, somebody that if you were to step into their presence, you'd be nervous. Your heart would be beating a little fast. Your palms would be sweating. You wouldn't want to make a misstep. You wouldn't want to say the wrong thing. You'd want to hear good words proceed from this person's mouth towards you. You feel it? You feel, like you feel that natural human emotion? That's what's being brought about in your relationship with God. Now, amplify it. Put some power, the power of the Holy Spirit in this. What happens to Daniel when God shows up in Daniel's context? What happens to Ezekiel? What happens to Moses when God shows up? They're on the ground. And they can't even move. Because they are frozen in that recognition of how low they are in comparison to the height of God. Last week, as we were talking about praising and exalting Yahweh, the Lord who reigns, the contrast between exalting God and worship, worship means to bow down. You lift God high, you get God as high as you can get him because that's where he belongs. You get you as low as you can get. The position of worship is head on the ground, prostrate, low, humble. That's this idea of fear, trembling. It should be an emotional experience. It should be a trembling experience. At the same time, God's our Father. He's telling you to, you to come boldly to him. There, there are times where you just need to get your head on the ground and worship God for who he is. There are other times, as a kid, you just need to run and jump up in joy and just land in the lap of your father, and you have that invitation from him. There's times where you need to stay, and you need to be sat in a chair, and you need to listen to the Lord rebuke you and set you straight. There's other times where you're asking for wisdom and knowledge, and you're looking to Jesus as teacher, and Lord, teach me to pray. There's other times where you're, you're crying out, and these are all the different themes of the Psalms. You're crying out and lament for the condition of your soul or the circumstance of life. You're crying out to God in thanksgiving and praise. These are, these are the multiple themes that we're gonna sit in as we travel through all of these Psalms, songs, teaching our souls to sing kingdom melodies. Kiss the son lest he be angry. If you're offended at that, knock it off. This is Eastern culture. When you greet a brother, there's, a, there's an intimacy there when you hug and you kiss on each cheek. Kiss the son in respect, in relationship, lest he be angry. Why? Because if you want to keep in rebellion, 
just the, the flash of his anger. That's the end of the ungodly. They will perish in the way. And again, you sit in the link between these first two Psalms. Psalm 1 ending with the sway of the ungodly shall perish, bringing up the same idea here at the end of Psalm 2. That the don't do this encouragement is because you will perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. But the end, the exhortation of both of these, blessed are all of those who put their trust in find your refuge. Zion means fortress. Find your God to be your fortress, your high wall, your high tower, your strong refuge. You need a warrior in your life. You need somebody to fight your battle, whatever that may be. You come to your father. You come to your savior. You depend upon the Holy Spirit. He is your avenger. He is your warrior. He is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Let him do the battle on your behalf. You stand in him, in his strength, in the power of his might. This is, again, there's no self-righteousness here. Jesus is the one who lives all of this out for us. Pursue his advice. Pursue his attitude. Pursue his actions. Here is a snapshot of the joy, regardless of the circumstances. Happiness, we usually connect with circumstances of life, but the, 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 the life that is filled with joy is a life that has found God to be who he claims to be. Because then that means the circumstances, they are what they are, and God is sovereign of these things. That means he is allowing this in my life. That means it's okay. That means, Lord, get down to business and whatever you need to do in me and through me. Amen? All right, we're going to sing a couple of worship songs in response to the Lord. Should we only do one? Let's only do one, because then we're going to bring up all of our graduates and pray for them. So you choose which song you want to sing. That means you got to get down to business, church. We have communion up at the tables as we remember Jesus, his body, and his blood. So, Father, we turn our minds to you in response Lord, I have, I have had an absolute blast over the last month just studying Samuel and the Psalms in depth. You continue to just mature me and change me, and you give me all these little, these gold nuggets, Lord, that I love and I'm so grateful for. So grateful that you are the king, that you're in control. It brings a great deal of comfort for me, Lord. I'm grateful that you're my warrior and that you're my savior. I'm grateful for your words, Lord. You have used your word to transform this man. You use your word, Lord, to me every day to call me not only back to you, Lord, but to remain in you and not to depart. Create in us, Lord, that image of your son the son in whom you are well pleased. That when you look at us, Lord, you're well pleased. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.